Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Second Nephi chapter 3 In this chapter, we find Lehi speaking to his other son that was born in the wilderness. He refers to him as his last-born, and his name was Joseph. We were first introduced to these young brothers, Jacob and Joseph, in 1 Nephi chapter 18, verse 7. We find in this chapter that Joseph's name has great significance. Lehi looks far into the past as he blesses Joseph and links him to the great Joseph of Egypt. Lehi then looks far into the future and links his young son, Joseph, to the great Joseph Smith. In so doing, Lehi teaches Joseph and undoubtedly those others who were in attendance as he blessed him, and he teaches us as modern readers even more about this promised Gentile nation that will be raised up in the latter days that will be tasked with disseminating the word to those who are scattered and gathering them back to the covenant. We will find that this is done through a future Joseph, one who is known in Jewish tradition as Messiah ben Joseph, and that the word will be restored through him. There are almost staggering layers of complexity in this chapter. We can step back after reading it and consider how Joseph Smith, because of what was compiled by Mormon is translating Nephi, who is quoting Lehi. By the way, Lehi is at his deathbed when Nephi is quoting him. And then Lehi is quoting Joseph of Egypt, who also was at his deathbed. Then we go even a layer deeper to the center of the onion, as it were, because we find that Joseph of Egypt is quoting the Lord himself. All of these layers come together for us as modern readers as a voice from the dust. As to the layout of this chapter, we find that in the first section, verses 1 through 4, Lehi is speaking directly to his son Joseph. Also in verse 4, Lehi introduces us to Joseph of Egypt. Lehi will offer Joseph's words to us from here to verse 21, and he will interject as narrator in verses 6, 7, 14, and 16, where at the beginning of each of these verses, uh, Lehi comes back in and says something like, Yea, thus prophesied Joseph, or Joseph truly said. As we read Joseph's words in this passage, we discover that this great prophetic character Joseph of Egypt, was truly a seer, and he was privy to many of the things that were to come after his time, including Moses, whom Joseph actually names in verses 9 and 10. The main focus of this chapter, however, is Joseph's vision of someone much farther into the future, his own namesake, whom we understand to be Joseph Smith, and Joseph of Egypt referred to him as a seer. He describes Latter-day Joseph in verses 6 through 9, and then in an extended passage in 11 through 21. Then we find that in verse 24, Lehi, as he is finishing his words to Joseph, offers his own prophecy of Joseph Smith. However, the section that's extending from verses 17 through 21, this really begins at the end of verse 16, We have the Lord himself prophesying of Joseph Smith, Jr. 
It would have been remarkable indeed then for Joseph Smith, as he finished translating this chapter, to step back and realize what it is that had just come through him, that he specifically was being described by Joseph of Egypt, Lehi of old, and by the Lord himself. This chapter ends in verse 25 with Lehi speaking directly to his son Joseph again, saying, Remember the words of thy dying father. Amen. With that introduction in mind, let's return to verse 1. And now I speak unto you, Joseph, my last born. Thou wast born in the wilderness of mine afflictions. Yea, in the days of my greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee. In this very patriarchal record, I think one can sense Lehi's tender feelings towards Sariah and his acknowledgement of her in this verse. And Lehi gives us more autobiographical insight from this verse simply by saying that in the days of my greatest sorrow did thy mother bear thee. We might pause for a moment and just wonder why it is that sorrow of this magnitude is necessary for us in our lives. We know that Lehi's Uh, the latter part of his life once he left Jerusalem and is directed by God to do so, that he experienced a, a great deal of sorrow. The record is clear on that. Here's something that Joseph B. Worthlin once said, Learning to endure times of disappointment, suffering, and sorrow is part of our on the job training. These experiences, while often difficult to bear at the time, are precisely the kinds of experiences that stretch our understanding build our character, and increase our compassion for others. Now Lehi restates the earlier promise that he gave to Jacob in the previous chapter. The covenant connection that he and his posterity, which most certainly includes Joseph, would have to this land. He says in verse 2, And may the Lord consecrate also unto thee this land, which is a most precious land for thine inheritance and the inheritance of thy seed with thy brethren for thy security forever. If it so be that ye shall keep the commandments of the Holy One of Israel. So that's, a again, a unique restatement of the inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. Verse 3, And now, Joseph, my last born, whom I have brought out of the wilderness of mine afflictions, May the Lord bless thee forever, for thy seed shall not utterly be destroyed. It strikes me that Lehi has brought Joseph out of the wilderness literally, but he's also saying the wilderness metaphorically, the wilderness of mine afflictions. That's something worth pondering. In the past, we've read of the destruction of a portion of Lehi's seed, and we've gained the understanding that, by and large, the seed of Nephi would be destroyed while the seed of Laman and Lemuel would live on. This passage shows us, however, that there still were some of Lehi's seed that did not come through Laman and Lemuel that lived on. Daniel Ludlow said this, The descendants of Joseph, the son of Lehi, were known as Nephites during much of the period covered by the Book of Mormon. However, when the Book of Mormon records the destruction of the Nephite nation, This does not mean that all of the descendants of Joseph were destroyed. That Lehi's promise was literally fulfilled is indicated by the Lord when he said to Joseph Smith in 1828 that the Book of Mormon had to be translated and published so that it might go forth unto the Josephites. It would seem that the Josephites could be uh, interpreted more broadly as those who are, are of the lineage of Joseph of Egypt. However, Ludlow is suggesting here that the Josephites have reference specifically, as the term is used in Doctrine and Covenants section 3, verse 17, to those who come from young Joseph. And now in verse 4, Lehi links himself and his son Joseph, to whom he is speaking, to Joseph of Egypt. Verse 4, For behold, thou art the fruit of my loins, and I am a descendant, of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. And great were the covenants of the Lord which he made unto Joseph. When we think of the great covenants of the Lord, we most often, I would say, think of Father Abraham. And we often read of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
We learn here, however, from Lehi that Joseph of Egypt, the next patriarch in line, also had access to those great covenants. And Joseph, too, was a part of that great patriarchal succession that we read of in Genesis. Wherefore, as Lehi continues here, Joseph truly saw our day. That's a remarkable thing for Lehi to say, and in fact, Nephi will say in the next chapter, 2 Nephi chapter 4, verse 2, uh, with respect to how it is that Joseph saw many things. Nephi said, And the prophecies which Joseph wrote, there are not many greater. And he prophesied concerning us and our future generations, and they are written upon the plates of brass. This also suggests to us that there are many more writings of Joseph that we simply don't have access today. And so really, uh, after reading Genesis and developing this, this feeling of, of love and appreciation for Joseph of Egypt, it's a great thrill as a Book of Mormon reader to turn to this chapter, 2 Nephi chapter 3, and discover this excerpt from Joseph of Egypt's own words. I would add, by the way, that these can also be read in the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis chapter 50. With regard to having an ancient prophet seeing our day, today we often think of Moroni because of this statement in Mormon chapter 8, verse 35. Behold, I speak unto you as if ye were present, and yet ye are not. But behold, Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me, and I know your doing. That's an utterly remarkable passage, and we can see that Joseph of Egypt had the same gift, and that he too saw far into the future and saw it in great detail, to the degree that he knew even the names and uh, characteristics of many individual people that would come after him, including Moses and Joseph Smith. Then Lehi continues in verse 5 by telling us, that Joseph of Egypt obtained a promise of the Lord, that out of the fruit of his loins the Lord God would raise up a righteous branch unto the house of Israel, not the Messiah, but a branch which was to be broken off, nevertheless to be remembered in the covenants of the Lord that the Messiah should be made manifest unto them in the latter days, in the spirit of power, unto the bringing of them out of darkness unto light, yea, out of hidden darkness, and out of captivity unto freedom." There's a great deal in this verse. For one thing, Lehi is linking himself yet again to Jacob of old, father Israel, in delivering this patriarchal blessing or benediction to his young son, Joseph, because Jacob, or Israel, delivered a blessing to his young son, Joseph, telling him that he was a fruitful bough whose branches would run over the wall. That can be read in Genesis chapter 49. Here, Lehi's verbiage is similar. No wall is mentioned, and he doesn't use the word bow, but he says a branch which was broken off. It's the same concept. And in fact, Lehi's imagery with a branch that is broken off makes it easier for us to link that to Zenos' prophecies when he likens the entire house of Israel to an olive tree that will have scattered branches grafted back into it. Reynolds and Sojal say this about this phrase, righteous branch. Here, Lehi explains that Joseph did not refer to the Messiah, but to someone who was to be broken off from his genealogical tree, and yet to be remembered in the latter days. Joseph in Egypt uses a common term when he speaks of Lehi as a branch that was to be broken off of the main tree, but to be restored in the latter days by the Messiah. I want to return to the phrase, great were the covenants of the Lord, that we read in verse 4, and read this from the Book of Mormon Institute manual. In the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, we read that the Lord hath visited Joseph, the son of Jacob, spoken of in the Old Testament, and that Joseph was given great promises concerning his posterity. As Lehi testified, Joseph truly saw our day, meaning the day of Lehi and his posterity and knew that in the future God would raise up a choice seer, namely the great prophet who was his namesake. And we'll read that in verse 15. 
Joseph knew also that it would be primarily his descendants whom the Lord would call upon first in these last days to carry the gospel to additional lost members of the house of Israel, scattered among the nations of the earth, in compliance with the covenant God made with Abraham. Obviously, since the Lord kept his covenant with Joseph, he will also keep his covenants with us if we are righteous as well. Lehi's teaching is a great example of how Heavenly Father honored the covenant he made with Joseph. We can have the confidence that God will always honor his covenants. I think we can also notice another interesting pattern in Scripture here. It's that our hearts seem to be drawn to our posterity the more we draw closer to God. Uh, We see this with Enos, for example, uh, his great desire to make sure that the record was preserved for his posterity. There is no doubt that Joseph of Egypt's heart was drawn out in love and concern for his future posterity. And it must have been a great source of joy for Joseph of Egypt when he was imprisoned and estranged as he was to see in vivid detail, no doubt, the, the role of his posterity in the latter days. For Joseph truly testified, saying, and that is verse 6, and that's Lehi's narrating voice once again. And now we turn to, to a quote from Joseph of Egypt. A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. Remarkable here to consider this great figure, Joseph of Egypt, looking so far into the future and seeing his namesake and the role that he played in the restoration in the latter days. Later in this chapter, the word restoration will actually be used. Now we go to verse 7, and Lehi interjects again for the final time in several verses as narrator and says, Yea, Joseph truly said. And now he turns it over again to Joseph, who says in verse 7, Thus saith the Lord unto me, A choice seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. And unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren, which shall be of great worth unto them, even to the bringing of them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. So Nephi has taught us a great deal about the way in which the Gentiles, who were last in the meridian of time, but who will be first in the latter days, would bring the covenant to the scattered of Israel and draw them back. Here, Lehi, through Joseph's words, is teaching us of a specific personality and leader and prophet among those Gentiles of the latter days who will do this, and it will be the seer Joseph, the fruit of the loins of Joseph of Egypt. Verse 8, Joseph of Egypt continues by saying, And I will give unto him a commandment, that he shall do none other work, save the work which I shall command him. And I will make him great in mine eyes, for he shall do my work. And when we read the words I and my and mine in this verse, this is the Lord speaking through Joseph of Egypt. As I mentioned at the beginning of this segment then, as we peel back the prophetic layers, the, the voices and the, and the witnesses, uh, here we come right to the center of the onion, so to speak, and we read the words of the Lord himself. It's no small thing, I think, in verse 8, for the Lord to refer to Joseph Smith as great, and great in mine eyes, no less. We can only guess that Joseph of Egypt would have had deep feelings of gratitude and appreciation towards this future Joseph. These two Josephs would have felt a kinship to one another. And we'll talk later about how Nephi would have felt a great kinship towards Joseph of Egypt. But as Joseph of Egypt saw into the future, uh, Joseph of the latter days certainly saw into the past and felt a kinship with several characters. Uh, Howard W. Hunter once said, We praise Joseph Smith for his capacity to commune not only with Jehovah, but also with other personages of heaven. So many visited, gave keys, and tutored that choice seer raised up in the latter days. When Father Smith blessed young Joseph in 1834, he declared that ancient Joseph in Egypt saw this latter-day seer. Ancient Joseph wept when he realized how the work of the prophet Joseph would bless the earlier Joseph's numerous posterity. So again, a very special kinship between these two Josephs 
and so much so that we learn in this patriarchal blessing, and we'll read it in full later, that this made the ancient Joseph weep. Verse 9, a new figure enters this prophecy, and we are still reading the words of Joseph of Egypt here. And he shall be great like unto Moses, whom I have said I would raise up unto you to deliver my people, O house of Israel. And I've just got to clarify there again and and say that those are the words of the Lord coming through Joseph of Egypt. Let's pause and remember here for a moment that it is the nation of Israel who came to Egypt because of Joseph's role there and first thrived in Egypt but later became enslaved uh, by a pharaoh who knew not Joseph, as the record says. This would have been a source of great sorrow to Joseph of Egypt as he was looking forward as a seer, and he would have seen Moses, and he actually knew him by name, this prophet which was to come and which was to deliver the Israelites. So we don't want to miss this remarkable detail that Joseph of Egypt actually knew Moses by name and that he would come as a deliverer. I want to return to this phrase, a choice seer, the way in which Joseph Smith is described. The Institute Manual provides us with commentary on what a seer is, and specifically the gift of seership that Joseph Smith held. It says, A seer is a person authorized of God to see with spiritual eyes things which God has hidden from the world. He is a revelator and a prophet. Mosiah chapter 8 is being referenced there, by the way, in that incident where Ammon meets up with Limhi and describes the gift of seership to him, saying that a seer is greater than a prophet. Then the Institute Manual continues, In the Book of Mormon, Ammon taught that only a seer could use special interpreters, or a Urim and Thummim. A seer knows the past, present, and future. Anciently, a prophet was often called a seer. Joseph Smith is the great seer of the latter days. The prophet Joseph Smith is the choice seer described in 2 Nephi 3.6 as a descendant of Joseph, son of Israel. Brigham Young provides us with perspective on Joseph Smith's role as this choice seer. He once said, It was decreed in the councils of eternity, long before the foundations of the earth were laid, that he, Joseph Smith, should be the man in the last dispensation of this world to bring forth the word of God unto the people and to receive the fullness of the keys and power of the priesthood of the Son of God. The Lord had his eyes upon him, and upon his father, and upon his father's father, and upon their progenitors clear back to Abraham, and from Abraham to the flood, from the flood to Enoch, and from Enoch to Adam. He was watched. He has watched that family and that blood as it has circulated from its fountain to the birth of that man. He, the prophet Joseph Smith, was foreordained in eternity to preside over this last dispensation. That's out of the discourses of Brigham Young. Elder Neil A. Maxwell provided six specific truths that Joseph Smith could see because of his gift of seership and things that were largely hidden previously from the eyes of the world. Here are those six things. Number one, Joseph received revelation about the extent and expanse of the universe. And we can read of that in Moses chapter 1 and in Doctrine and Covenants section 76. Number two, revelation about God's central purpose. And here Elder Maxwell references Moses 139, which of course says um, that the Lord's work and glory is to bring about the, the immortality and eternal life of man. Number three, revelation about us as God's children. And that's uh, section 93. Revelation about man's destiny. That's explained in section 84. Revelation about God's personal involvement with his children. And that is uh, revealed in Alma 18, verse 32. And the sixth thing Elder Maxwell mentions here is that Joseph received revelation about the expanse of the Savior's atonement, which is especially expanded upon in 2 Nephi chapter 9, verse 7, and section 88, verse 6. We have this from the Ogden Skinner commentary that expands on this even further and provides us with an excerpt, an extended excerpt, uh, of Joseph Smith's patriarchal blessing given to him by his father. And of course, his father will later be referenced in this chapter as well by Joseph of Egypt. 
The Lord promised Joseph in Egypt that the choice Latter-day seer, Joseph Smith, would be highly esteemed, respected, and honored by his righteous and loyal descendants, and that the seer would help them come to a knowledge of the covenants of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of the accompanying saving ordinances. Following are a few lines from the patriarchal blessing that Joseph Smith Sr. gave to his son Joseph Smith Jr. Quote, I bless thee with the blessings of thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and even the blessings of thy father Joseph, the son of Jacob. Behold, he looked after his posterity in the last days. He sought diligently to know from whence the son should come who should bring forth the word of the Lord by which they might be enlightened and brought back to the true fold, and his eyes beheld thee, my son. His heart rejoiced, and his soul was satisfied, and he said, From among my seed, scattered with the Gentiles, shall a choice seer arise, whose heart shall meditate great wisdom, whose intelligence shall circumscribe and comprehend the deep things of God, and whose mouth shall utter the law of the just. Thou shalt hold the keys of this ministry, even the presidency of this church, both in time and in eternity. Joseph in Egypt knew that the latter-day seer would be great like unto Moses, whom the Lord would raise up to deliver his people out of the land of Egypt, a remarkably specific prophecy of what would happen to Jacob's descendants, the children of Israel, within a few centuries after Joseph's lifetime, and exactly who would be sent to earth to bring about their dramatic exodus from Egypt. Uh, so <clears throat> that's to that previous point. I uh, hear Ogden and Skinner are, are also saying how remarkable it is that uh, Joseph of Egypt saw Moses. And verse 10 says, And Moses will I raise up to deliver thy people out of the land of Egypt. It is remarkable before we move on and speak more of Joseph Smith to consider how similar he was to Moses. Reynolds and Sojal, in their commentary on the Book of Mormon, said this, The prophet Joseph Smith is here compared to Moses. The comparison is striking. Both saw and spoke with Jehovah. Both were liberators who led multitudes in exodus for the sake of liberty from oppression. Both were lawgivers by divine inspiration. Both were prophets and seers. Both performed mighty miracles. Both encountered opposition from friends and enemies. Both depended largely on a brother for success, Moses on Aaron, Joseph on Hiram. Now the words of Joseph of Egypt, as he quotes the Lord, continue in verse 11. But a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins, and not to the bringing forth my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them. This is telling us very specifically then that the word which comes through Joseph Smith will have power and veracity in its own right, but it will also serve to validate the word which has already come to the world, and that undoubtedly is the Bible. Then verse 12, which sounds something like Ezekiel, when he describes the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah. Wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, shall grow together under the confounding of false doctrines, and laying down of contentions, and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins, and bringing them to the knowledge of their fathers in the latter days, and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. Learning as we have that Joseph's writings were in the brass plates, we have to wonder if Ezekiel was well aware of this verse that we just read uh, when he said what he did about the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah. I want to offer some modern-day commentary on how these two sticks shall grow together, which is the verbiage again in verse 12. Boyd K. Packer once said, The Old Testament and the New Testament, and the Book of Mormon, are now woven together in such a way that as you pour over one, you are drawn to the other. As you learn from one, you are enlightened by the other. They are indeed one in our hands. 
And Elder Packer is referencing Ezekiel there when he says one in our hands. The Ogden and Skinner commentary says, The life's work of Joseph Smith would include bringing forth the Book of Mormon and also spending additional years of his prophetic career restoring, revising, correcting, augmenting, clarifying, and expounding the text of the Bible. The two volumes would help bring people to the Savior. The Bible and the Book of Mormon together accomplished just what verse 12 describes. They confounded false doctrine, lay down contentions, establish peace, and bring us to a knowledge of our ancestors and of the Lord's covenants. With the coming forth of the complementary editions of the Scriptures, the Bible in 1979 and the Triple Combination in 1981, the prophecy in 2 Nephi 3, verse 12, and Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 15-17, through 17, stands fulfilled. We have witnessed a stunning fulfillment of a significant ancient prophecy in our day. Here's something Elder Holland said about this in his book, Christ and the New Covenant. Latter-day Saint scholars consider the bringing together of the stick of Joseph with the stick of Judah, as prophesied by Ezekiel, one of the great contributions of the Book of Mormon, and so it is. However, in the matter of bringing together disparate records, it is equally important to acknowledge what the Book of Mormon does to unite the Old Testament with the New Testament in a way that is not usually acknowledged and is in fact sometimes seen as impossible in other religious traditions. Many students of the Bible have felt it difficult to reconcile Old Testament theology and the views of deity portrayed there with what is presented later in the New Testament. Bridging such a perceived gap is yet one more inestimable contribution made by the Third Testament, the Book of Mormon. This new covenant links the religious worlds of Malachi and Matthew, not only by bridging the intervening years between them, commencing as it does 600 years before Christ and ending 400 years afterward, but more important by bringing Old and New Testament texts together in the continuity of doctrine taught and the image of deity portrayed. Of course, the central role of the premortal, mortal, and postmortal resurrected Christ in the Book of Mormon is the unifying thread that ties together all the saving teachings and traditions of the Old Covenant with the New. So we've learned so far from Lehi in quoting Joseph of Egypt, who's using the words of the Lord, that this latter-day Joseph will be a seer and that he will bring the word in such a way that will have a unifying effect and will fulfill Ezekiel's prophecy and, of course, Joseph of Egypt's prophecy that we're given here. Now we learn something new about this Joseph of the latter days in verse 13. And out of weakness he shall be made strong. In that day when my work shall commence among my people unto the restoring thee, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. This has an interesting way of linking Joseph Smith to the Apostle Paul. The Ogden Skinner Commentary says, Out of weakness Joseph Smith shall be made strong. Is the same message Paul taught. The ancient missionary apostle wrote, Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations... And by the way, this is out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-10. through 10. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in mine affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, and in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. All of us have weaknesses. We are all given a thorn in the flesh to make us humble, and if we allow the humility to work in us properly, we can make the weaknesses our strengths. We can actually become strong, even powerful, but the power does not originate in us. Paul wrote, I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Of ourselves we are nothing. We are totally dependent upon him. The Lord is our strength. The Lord has said, He that is weak among you hereafter shall be made strong. That's an expression out of Doctrine and Covenants section 50, verse 16. As we learn patience, long-suffering, and self-mastery, we will overcome the weaknesses and be made perfect in weakness, and have the power of Christ 
to rest upon us. Now verse 14, where we get Lehi's narrating voice once again, And thus prophesied Joseph, saying, Behold, that seer will the Lord bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise which I have obtained of the Lord, of the fruit of my loins, shall be fulfilled. Behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. And really what we have here is Joseph of Egypt's own editorial comments on the revelation he had just received from the Lord and had related from the Lord. This gives us somewhat of a feel of what Joseph's writing style would have been like in the brass plates. And this also gives us a new detail about the latter-day Joseph, that they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. Reynolds and Sojal remind us that this promise the Lord has kept, even although the prophet Joseph Smith suffered martyrdom. Confounded means confused, put to shame, defeated. That has always been the fate of the enemies of the servants of the Lord. The McConkie Millet Commentary says, In Moroni's initial instruction to Joseph Smith, the youthful prophet was told that when it became known that he had the records from which the Book of Mormon would come, the workers of iniquity would seek his overthrow. They will circulate falsehoods to destroy your reputation and also will seek to take your life. Moroni said, But remember this, if you are faithful and shall hereafter continue to keep the commandments of the Lord, you shall be preserved to bring these things forth. Years later, Joseph would write that the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. At a time when there seemed little hope, the prophet being incarcerated in the Liberty Prison, the Lord spoke to him, saying, Hold on thy way, and the priesthood shall remain with thee. For their bounds are set, having reference to his enemies here. They cannot pass. Thy days are known, and thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. Before the church was two years of age, having but a handful of members, the opposition against it became so intense that Joseph Smith and Signe Rigdon were directed to confound your enemies, call upon them to meet you both in public and in private. Appended to that charge came the following promise, Inasmuch as ye are faithful, their shame shall be made manifest. Wherefore, let them bring forth their strong reasons against the Lord. Verily, thus saith the Lord unto you, There is no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. And if any man shall lift his voice against you, he shall be confounded in mine own due time. And that's out of section 71, the Doctrine of Covenants. Then Joseph of Egypt gives us a new and fascinating detail in verse 15, where he already has called Moses by name, and now he will call this choice seer by name. And his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. So we also learn that detail. Uh, that uh, It's an allusion to Joseph Smith Sr., of course. And he shall be like unto me, for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people unto salvation. This phrase, the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, is something that's very interesting to think about. When we consider how it could be, uh, as we look at Joseph of Egypt through a Latter-day Saint lens, uh, but who is someone who is so universally known by so many and revered by so many who read the Bible, we might wonder just how widely known this prophecy is and if it is part of those plain and precious truths that were expunged, as it were, from the biblical record. With that idea in mind, uh, we have this from Elder Tad R. Callister from a book called Inevitable Apostasy and the Promised Revelation. Quote, The Jews have a tradition, somewhat distorted with time, but nonetheless noteworthy that in the latter days, in other words, in the days when Elijah reappears, a Messiah ben Joseph will prepare the way for their Messiah. Some of the traditions hold that he will be a descendant of Joseph who was sold into Egypt, and he will be of the seed of Ephraim, that he will meet a violent death, and that he will be slain by the Antichrist. And Antichrist here can be uh, interpreted as those who oppose Christ's work. Then Elder Callister goes on, What would be the purpose of his mission? Joseph Klausner, who wrote the Messianic Idea in Israel, summarized it as follows. 
This Messiah, who is referred to by the Samaritans as a Taib, meaning he who returns, or according to others, he who causes to return, that is, one who brings about repentance or brings back better days, is, in the later Samaritan sources, regarded primarily as a prophet who will restore everywhere the true law to its former validity and convert all peoples, especially the Jews, to the Samaritan or Ephraimite religion. Unquote. And that's, again, from Joseph Klausner. It is of interest to me, uh, says Elder Callister, to note that footnote 4 on page 484 of Klausner's book states, But now most scholars translate Taib, the restorer. Dr. Klausner wondered why this tradition of a Messiah ben Joseph was so prevalent among the Jews, but not found in the scriptures of today. The answer, because it was removed from the scriptures, but the tradition carried on. Fortunately, the prophecy is preserved in the Book of Mormon. Joseph of Egypt prophesied that in the latter days a seer should be raised up, named after him, and it shall be after the name of his father. In other words, this prophet or seer would be named Joseph, and he would be named after his father Joseph. This seer was prophesied to do a work of great worth, even to the bringing of them, the descendants of Joseph of Egypt, to the knowledge of the covenants which I, God, have made with my fathers." Quoting there, Second Nephi, uh, chapter three, verse seven. Now Lehi's narrative voice will re-enter in verse sixteen, but before we read that, it's useful to step back and consider the ways in which Joseph of Egypt's prophecies regarding Joseph Smith have been fulfilled. This is provided by the Book of Mormon Institute manual and it has several quotes from the verses that we've already read, and then lists possible fulfillments for them. So in verse 6, we read this, A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. And here's a possible fulfillment. The Lord said Joseph Smith Jr. was to be called a seer, a translator, a prophet, and that Joseph Smith was appointed to stand at the head of this dispensation. And those come out of the Doctrine and Covenants, section 21 and section 110. Then we read in verse 7, He shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. A possible fulfillment of that is that there are millions of descendants of the Book of Mormon people who recognize Joseph Smith as the prophet of the Restoration. Then verse 7 said, He shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, which shall be of great worth unto them. And a possible fulfillment of this is that many of the children of Lehi have been blessed by the light of the gospel that was restored by the prophet Joseph Smith. Then we read in verse 8, He shall do none other work save the work which I shall command him. Here the Institute Manual says, Joseph Smith's life focused upon doing the will of the Lord. For example, in the beginning of his ministry, he was commanded to translate the Book of Mormon. And you have a gift to translate the plates, and this is the first gift that I bestowed upon you. Bestowed upon you. And I have commanded that you should pretend to no other gift until my purpose is fulfilled in this for I will grant unto you no other gift until it is finished. And that's out of section 5, verse 4. Then we read in this chapter, in verse 9, that he shall be great like unto Moses. And the Institute Manual says, Moses gathered Israel from Egypt to the promised land. Joseph Smith was given the keys by Moses to gather Israel. Then Doctrine and Covenants section 103, verse 16 says, Therefore, I will raise up unto my people a man who shall lead them like as Moses led the children of Israel. So this is one of the many ways that Joseph was like Moses. Then we've already read in verse 11, I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins. And here, of course, Joseph Smith translated and gave the children of Lehi the record of their ancestors, as well as many other revelations. Then verse 12, says, The fruit of thy loins shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines. And here, of course, we can see the fulfillment in the Book of Mormon uh, and in other revelations, which give plain and authoritative clarification on many principles and doctrines of the gospel in the Bible. The Doctrine and Covenants talks about this, too, in section 20 and in section 42. There are several more that we've already read, and we'll read a fulfillment of those. We read in verse 13 that out of weakness he shall be made strong. Remember that Joseph's story is that he was a humble farm boy and he became the prophet of the restoration. 
Then we read in verse 14, they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. And a fulfillment of that is that as promised by the Lord, and we can see that in 3 Nephi chapter 21, verse 10, the prophet Joseph Smith was preserved until he had accomplished his mission. Of course, we get that from uh, the, the, the epistle in Liberty Jail as well. Then we read, his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. Well, Joseph Smith Jr., the third son of Joseph Smith Sr., was named after his father. Then the final thing we read in verse 15 was, For the thing, the gospel and its ordinances, which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord, shall bring my people unto salvation. And the fulfillment here, according to the Institute Manual, is, It is through the restoration of the church and the Lord's ordinances that the prophet Joseph Smith showed us how to obtain eternal life. Now returning back to the text and to verse 16, where Lehi says, Yea, thus prophesied Joseph. I am sure of this thing, even as I am sure of the promise of Moses. For the Lord hath said unto me, I will preserve thy seed forever. We can think again of how other prophets in vision have wept over the destruction of their seed in the future. And we, we, we can see how that was the same for Joseph of Egypt and how he would have looked forward with joy and hope to Moses and to Joseph Smith. Verse 17, And the Lord hath said, so now Joseph again is quoting the Lord, and this will be an extended passage that will take us through verse 21. And it reads in that sense like a section of the Doctrine and Covenants, because these are the Lord's words. I will raise up a Moses, and I will give thee power unto him in a rod, and I will give judgment unto him in writing. Yet I will not loose his tongue that he shall speak much, for I will not make him mighty in speaking, but I will write unto him my law by the finger of mine own hand, and I will make a spokesman for him. And the Lord said unto me also, I will raise up unto the fruit of thy loins, and I will make for him a spokesman. And I beheld that I will give unto him that he shall write the writing of the fruit of thy loins unto the fruit of thy loins, and the spokesman of thy loins shall declare it. The Lord here in this verse is referring to several different parties, and it can become confusing. Here's some very helpful clarifying commentary by both Bruce R. McConkie and Monty S. Nyman. First, Elder McConkie, note these words of the Lord, and I behold, I will give unto him, and then what Elder McConkie does here is to put the, the um, proper name or the, the name next to the pronoun, so that when the Lord says him in verse 18, uh, Elder McConkie puts Mormon in brackets next to that. So I'll read it that way. And I, I behold, I will give unto him Mormon, that he shall write the writing of the fruit of thy loins, the Nephites, unto the fruit of thy loins, the Lamanites, and the spokesman of thy loins, Joseph Smith, shall declare it. So that's a useful way of reading that verse. And Elder McConkie continues by saying, that is, Mormon wrote the Book of Mormon, but what he wrote was taken from the writings of the Nephite prophets, and these writings, compiled into one book, were translated by Joseph Smith and sent forth by him unto the Lamanites. Monty S. Nyman has a slightly different uh, interpretation of this, or we could possibly say that he drills down a level deeper uh, when he looks at who the spokesman that is mentioned in verse 18 might be. He says the spokesman for Joseph Smith, the seer, was to write the writings of the fruit of Joseph of Egypt's unto the fruit of Joseph of Egypt's loins, and the spokesman of Joseph of Egypt's loins shall declare it. While there are other opinions, the spokesman here in the writer's opinion, the writer again being Monty S. Nyman, was Oliver Cowdery. The Lord told Isaiah that he would say to the man that was not learned, Joseph Smith, Thou shalt read the words which I shall give unto thee. In the translation process, Joseph read the words given to him by revelation, and as Oliver later testified, quote, I wrote with mine own pen, my own pen, the entire Book of Mormon, save a few pages, as it fell from the lips of the prophet Joseph Smith, and he translated by the gift and power of God, unquote. So while interpretations of this verse may vary, What's clear is that the detail uh, that, that Joseph, the, the, the degree of resolution 
that Joseph of Egypt was seeing these future events in is, is really staggering. Verse 19 continues, And the words which he shall write shall be the words which are expedient in my wisdom should go forth unto the fruit of thy loins. And it shall be as if the fruit of thy loins had cried unto them from the dust, for I know their faith. Verse 20, And they shall cry from the dust, yea, even repentance unto their brethren, even after many generations have gone by them. And it shall come to pass that their cry shall go, even according to the simpleness of their words. Amazingly, we see this word simpleness in verse 20, and then in verse 21, we'll read the verse or we'll read the word weakness. That might remind us of the preface of the Doctrine and Covenants in section 1, where it says that this weak and the simple will bring forth the words to others. It's beautiful and consistent imagery that the Book of Mormon would cry out to future readers as a voice from the dust. And so as we read the Book of Mormon, that is what's coming to us. But it's incredible here to consider that Joseph of Egypt himself, going so far back in the past, that he, too, was privy to that imagery and that verbiage, cry from the dust. Reynolds and Sojal said, The phrase, they shall cry from the dust, refers to the Book of Mormon. It is a divine promise that by means of this volume, although its words are simple and weak, the descendants of Joseph will be converted to the covenants God made with their fathers. Now the Lord, as quoted by Joseph of Egypt, concludes by saying in verse 21, Because of their faith, their words shall proceed forth out of my mouth unto their brethren who are the fruit of thy loins, and the weakness of their words will I make strong in their faith unto the remembering of my covenant which I made unto thy fathers. And remember here that we're talking about a prophet who's writing, and there's an unmistakable connection between this and Moroni's words later in Ether chapter 12, where he talks about the weakness of his words. Yet another tie-in to another prophet that adds to the layers of complexity of this chapter. Now we return back in verse 22 and 23 to the original uh, format of this chapter, where Lehi is speaking to his son Joseph. So verse 22, And now behold, my son Joseph, after this manner did my father of old prophesy. Wherefore, because of this covenant, thou art blessed, for thy seed shall not be destroyed. Lehi repeats that there. For they shall hearken unto the words of the book. Lehi is teaching him then that the means of their salvation, the reason that they will not be destroyed, is because they hearken unto the words of the book. That might remind us a bit of the Olivet Discourse, where we find that those very elect who will not be deceived are those who treasure up the word. Now Lehi continues in speaking to young Joseph, and in his own words prophesies of the later or the latter-day Joseph which is to come. Lehi says, And there shall rise up one mighty among them who shall do much good, both in word and in deed, being an instrument in the hands of God with exceeding faith, to work mighty wonders, and do that thing which is great in the sight of God, unto the bringing to pass much restoration unto the house of Israel, and unto the seed of thy brethren. Lehi uses the term mighty wonders in this verse, and we've, we've uh, read of a mighty work previously in Nephi's writings. And we have in the past interpreted that to mean the restoration of the latter days which is to come through Joseph Smith. And in this verse, the word restoration is actually used. So this is a very beautiful verse, and as McConkie and Millet say, Lehi recapitulates the promises made to the seed of Joseph of Egypt, emphasizing the role of the choice seer, the mighty one, whom we know to be the prophet Joseph Smith, the great prophet of the Restoration. So that is how this discourse on the prophet Joseph Smith ends in this incredible chapter with all these layers of voices testifying of him. While it is couched, really, inside of a patriarchal blessing between Lehi and his young son, Joseph, and we, we get this in the final verse, in verse 25, And now, blessed art thou, Joseph, behold, thou art little, wherefore hearken unto the words of thy brother Nephi, and it shall be done unto thee even according to the words which I have spoken. Remember the words of thy dying father. Amen. 
We can feel, as we did in the previous chapter with Jacob, Lehi's tender, uh, loving feelings toward Joseph, saying that thou art little. We can think as parents of our children who may already be in adulthood, but we've seen the full gamut of their growth, and we sometimes still think of them as little. It's very beautiful imagery. Lehi's use of the word amen is of interest at the end of this verse, and Reynolds and Soljal said, This familiar word is an adjective meaning true or faithful. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, Christ is called the amen, the true and faithful witness. The word was well known to the Hebrews. In the trial by ordeal, common among the ancients, the accused person was made to drink a potion cursed by the officiating priest before the altar of Jehovah. An oath was then read, and the suspect responded, responded, Amen, Amen. So be it. According to Deuteronomy 27, verses 14 through 26, the Levites were commanded to put a motion before the assembly of Israel that twelve offenses specified be declared grave crimes, some of them calling for the penalty of death, and that the motion was to be accepted by the people answering, Amen. To bring this chapter to a close and this audio segment, I want to just return to this phrase, mighty among them, or one mighty among them, and and that is how Joseph Smith is being described. Ogden Skinner said, Lehi's posterity would be blessed through one mighty among them, who shall do much good, both in word and in deed, being an instrument in the hands of God, with exceeding faith to work mighty wonders, and do the thing which is great in the sight of God, unto the bringing to pass much restoration unto the house of Israel." and unto the seed of thy brethren. No one in the last days fulfills that prophetic utterance more than Joseph Smith. Mighty, then, is an appropriate way to describe Joseph Smith. I think we can see from this that it's an appropriate way to describe Joseph of Egypt as well. He was very mighty. He, too, clearly visited the visionary realm and saw specific people and events in the future. He, too, was a seer. We can appreciate how maybe he was given that great gift as a compensatory measure in his terrible imprisoned solitude. Uh, Moroni had that same ability and that same gift telling us again that Jesus Christ hath shown you unto me and I know you're doing. And Moroni too was in a, a period of solitude and exile. I think we can say that Joseph the son of Lehi, even though Lehi says thou art little, that he too in his own right was mighty. Lehi, who acts as the the, the overall narrating voice in this chapter, most certainly was mighty in his view of things and in his willingness to obey God's commandments. And Nephi, who is relating all of this to us, was mighty as well. And I think Nephi really would have felt a special kinship to Joseph of Egypt for so many reasons. There are parallels between Nephi and Joseph of Egypt that we've looked at before because they both, not following strictly the law of primogenitor, at least under its original intent, became the the leaders among their elder brethren. And Nephi and Joseph clearly both were mighty in their view of things and in their relationship with God. I think it can follow then that as we read this, that we too can be mighty as we fulfill our own missions in mortality and link ourselves to these great prophetic figures by tapping in to the same spirit of prophecy, which is the testimony of Jesus, by reading these things and considering them in the spirit. That brings us to the end, then, of Second Nephi chapter 3. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture 
and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.